I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning and would like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges. And if you've been with us for the past several weeks, that sounds about right because we left off in Judges chapter 6 last week, so we pick up Judges chapter 7 this week. But if you're visiting with us, you might think, I see the communion plates. Judges is not where I would have guessed we would be going. But this is what we've been studying for our summer series. We've taken a break from our verse-by-verse study through the book of John. And uh, today we look at Gideon part 2. There are three chapters that cover Gideon's story. And uh, I do believe that this is going to take us where we need to be in order to understand communion. Um, Not that we don't understand it already, but it will take us to a a clear picture of grace and our need for it. And communion is a reminder of, of that. Something to be done in remembrance of the one who died to provide the grace of salvation. But what we'll do to begin with, and we'll look through most of chapter 7. We'll leave about a paragraph for next week. But let's read just a bit and then ask the Lord for his help in our study. This is verse 1 of of Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help in understanding the word that you wrote. We ask that you help us understand it and then that you would give us the strength to obey it. Open for us an understanding of grace for our own brokenness, our weakness and our need. And how salvation, especially salvation given to us by the sinless Son of God, is exactly what we need to make us presentable to you in your presence. Lord, we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, if you can recall from last week, we studied chapter 6 of Judges. We're introduced to Gideon. And we learned how while he was hiding from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord, who in that case was none other than Jesus before he's born of a virgin in Bethlehem, comes to Gideon and explains to him that he has need of his courage and his valor, that he's the one that's going to take uh, the people of Israel out from under the captivity and bondage of the Midianites. And that was difficult for us to understand because as we went through it, we learned more and more that that Gideon's just not that guy. He's afraid. He's cowardly. He is in much need of uh, assurance and reassurance and confirmation. And we finished up last week with his rather famous uh, fleecing test. Remember that? Where he wanted the Lord to have dew on this 
fleece, which was a big pile of, of lamb's wool, but all the ground around it to be dry. And if you'll do that, then I believe that you'll give me the hand of the Midianites, or well, into my hand. And when he woke up the next morning, it was exactly that way. Um, but then he switched it. He said, don't be mad at me. Don't you love when people come to you and they, this is the first thing out of their mouth? Now, don't be mad what I'm about to say. But he said, I want to reverse it. I want the, the, the actual fleece to be dry and the ground around it to be wet, which uh, scientifically, we're told, would be the more difficult miracle to produce. Well, that's the way he woke up. So he's ready to go into battle now that he's confirmed. But we start into chapter 7, and just as it appears the battle is set to begin again, there's another interruption. But it's not Gideon's fault this time, as if he needs, again, one more confirmation that the Lord is going to uh, give the victory to him. This time, it's actually the Lord who hits the pause button. And what he says here is that there's a problem with the number of people that he's going to use in this militaristic uh, victory. He needs to thin the ranks. And there's a reason why he says this. Because if I let this number go up to the Midianites, you're going to think that this is your own strength that you're fighting in. So when the Lord is time out here, it's not because he's worried as to whether or not he can provide the victory. That's sure. He's concerned that the victory won't be great enough for him to get the credit. He's thinking that the people will take credit for themselves. So the army must be reduced to leave no room in their minds that the victory was won by their own strength. But it was God's strength. So verse 3 begins this process... And I don't know if you'll find this anywhere else in history, really. I don't think that um, in American history we are ever on record saying, you know what, we've just got too many men for this battle. Any of you that want to go home, that's fine with us. No questions asked. In fact, you can get in big trouble enlisted in the United States Army, Marine Corps, Air Force, uh, Navy for not showing up. In this case, they're told to go home if they've got any problems whatsoever. So the only requirement for withdrawal from enlistment in God's army on this day was fear or trembling. And a lot of them took them up on it. I don't know if we've got any numbers people here who like to look at statistics. But if you take 22,000, those are the ones that went home, and add that to 10,000, those are the ones that remain, that's 32,000, 22,000 is 68.75% of the 32,000. Your army just got a haircut. 68 and three quarters percent went home. Just like that. Now if Gideon is struggling with whether or not the Lord's going to pull this victory off, that's not the way to deliver a shot in the arm the day before the battle. But there's a specific reason why God is doing this. And the emphasis from this point on through the rest of the chapter is weakness. That's the theme of this whole passage. All of this has to do with a specific required weakness to be useful to God for His purposes. And we'll get back to that 
in a few moments. But this was actually only the first stage in uh, the army reduction campaign that the Lord uh, gets Gideon on the day before the battle. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. So 10,000 is too many, not 32,000, 10,000. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. I actually skipped a line. This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So basically who I say keep, keep. Who I say send home, send home. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water. You may remember this story from Sunday school. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps. We've seen this happen. You shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. Verse 6, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. So that's a pretty lopsided uh, thing here. Only 300 people do it one way and the rest, almost 10,000 minus 300, do it another. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. It's kind of worded a little awkwardly, but what that means in verse 8 is that the people that went home left their trumpets in the hands of the 300 who stays. That will account for later why 300 men have 300 trumpets. Usually you didn't carry a trumpet into battle, but they've each got one. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, whether or not you're familiar with this from Sunday school or having it uh, displayed on the flannel graph for you or just being one of these stories that you remember hearing growing up, as far as the biblical record and description of what's taking place in this second round of uh, army reduction, I uh, hate to disappoint you, but it's very confusing to translate and try to understand. Um, you may, if you're this type of inquisitive thinking person, even as a kid, thought to yourselves, I've seen a dog lap, and dogs usually don't use their hand to do it because dogs don't have hands. <laughs> so maybe the idea is that the hand is like a, a dog's tongue, and you're just bringing the water to your face, or... You might have thought, well, the people who get down on their knees and put their face in the water, that's how I remember seeing dogs drink. They put the face in the water. But then you add to it all these things you might have been told that would amount to a reasoning behind why the 300 that lapped were chosen over the rest of them who didn't. And usually at that point, you begin to hear points in sermons about how the men who lapped like the dog were watching around to make sure the army wasn't coming and that these men for some reason were more brave and were more battle ready than the others who were sent home 
But that's just not given to us in the text. We would have to read that into it. And it's easy enough to understand why we'd want to read that in. Because with the first round, let all of the cowards go home. And we'll just keep the strong and the brave. And we'll fight with them. So in round two, that would be kind of the same thing, but even more drastic. We're just going to keep 300 commandos. Navy SEALs, SEAL Team 6, whatever. But... these green berets, these guys, they're the ones that we're going to stake all our confidence on. It's just not in the passage. The, the truth of it is, God does not tell us what He's looking for in those 300 men. And if it's, any, if it's, if it's even close to what He's looking for in Gideon, those are the 300 rejects that He just enlisted. They might have been the ones that Hey, you know, you got just the brave left, but these 300 goofballs here, set them up. That's what he said. The ones that I tell you to keep, you keep. Got it? The ones I tell you to send home, send those home. Almost as if it would not have been abundantly clear that that's the 300 that we want to keep, right? Here's what we need to do. Not worry about verse 5 and 6 because they're confusing. Worry about verse 2. Look back at that. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest they boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. The point of all this is God's going to reduce this army down to something he can use, and he can get the credit, and the whole army can know that he has done it. That's the point of this passage. How he does that seems to be his business. What he's going to do seems to be abundantly clear. The test down at the water and the lapping and all that is only a mechanism to divide 300 from the rest and keep those. So now that we've got that final 300 um, who may be Navy SEALs, they may not. We're not sure. Commentaries differ. What we've got left is 99.06 of the army at home and less than 1% remain. Look at verse 9. The same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels are without number. Same description given in in chapter 6. And the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So it means you can't count them. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. When I read that, I thought, they're Russians. (laughs) The ESV chooses to use the word comrade here. Your translation may use a different term. They're Midianites, not Russians. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian... And came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down and so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, 
This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. So if, if you're using your imagination, you're following the narrative as it goes. It had to be quite a, 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 a night to, to try to sleep before the next day's battle. After greater than 99% of your army went home, it's just you and 300 men. But it's at this point that God gives Gideon reassurance. And this is the only time in the story that Gideon hasn't asked for it. Think about that. That God decides to encourage him, but based on his initiation of such a thing. Knowing that Gideon is probably more afraid than he's been yet. But this time, it involves sneaking into the enemy's base camp in the dark. So this is, this is the biggest... Uh, recon expedition yet most dangerous and I don't know if you noticed but it says if you are afraid Gideon um, yes then take your servant with you and of course we read doesn't even give you much of a break um, then he went down with Pora his servant to the outpost yes I'm going to take him with me I'll take the if clause so Gideon with his servant sneak down into the base camp and what they find when they get there is this one fella telling another fella the dream he had now how many of you like me like to listen to other people's dreams when they tell them how many of you like me usually don't tell your dreams to other people <laughs> the reason why we like to hear them but not tell them is because they're usually really weird and if they're anything like mine they'll involve things you're familiar with like your house or the people you're related to that live in that house with you but the house will have extra rooms or be missing a room or the church will be uh, like the one in Wake Chapel looks but it'll be in Danville or, or something strange or people you're related to you recognize them but they're acting in a different way than, than is anything characteristic of them and then we try to figure it out alright what does this mean what am I worried about what am I uh, obsessing over? It used to be that I, me and a, a bunch of, of guys in Virginia would play uh, Axis and Allies. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's a board game based off of World War II. And I had to quit playing on the weekends because I'd dream about it all night long. And it was bad to be dreaming about Axis and Allies on Sunday morning when you're supposed to be doing anything but Axis and Allies. So... What we dream seems to have something to do with what we're anxious about. But the, the, the emphasis on interpreting it is nothing like this culture we're reading about here. In fact, God used to talk to people through their dreams. We'd learn about Daniel and Joseph interpreting dreams that God had given people for reasons. So this is a little bit different here than what we're used to. But it still sounds like a really strange dream, doesn't it? 
Here you're Gideon with your servant eavesdropping on these men. And he's talking about this big, huge bread roll tumbling down the, the valley wall and hitting the, the tent, which represents the camp, and knocking it upside down and flat. And then the other person being terrified that that's got to be Gideon. Now, if you're Gideon, you've probably got to be thinking, bread roll? Where's the lightning? Thunder? Now, if you're making up your own dream to terrify your enemies with, do you want to be the bread roll? <laughs> do you want to be like a tornado? Think about that. Nobody uses that for their uh, mascot, do they? The Carolina dinner rolls? <laughs> We're real scared of them. I'm going to eat that dinner roll. It's just, you look at it and go, oh. But it's, it's made out of barley, which is a, a poorer type of, of, of bread. I think it's exactly that way. The whole theme is weakness, right? Almost to the point of a joke. We're going to be wiped out by a big barley roll. That's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to be wiped out by 300 men in a way you would never see coming. That's what's about to take place here. So the recon mission gives Gideon the confidence he needs. He returns to his men and quickly organizes their plan. And it's going to happen earlier than he thought. It's going to happen that night. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, the strategy here, as far as we can tell from the scripture we're reading, was devised by Gideon himself. We're not told that the Lord gave him those specifics. And the Lord had given him a lot of specifics. Maybe it was revealed to him. But it seems as though the reader is to come to the conclusion this is Gideon's plan. Which is interesting. Because it is specifically engineered to capitalize on the fear of those Midianites. You're talking about the man who's known characteristically for being anxious and fearful. But now he's devising a plan to capitalize on the fear of those in the camp and the dreams they're having, uh, such as he's heard. So he assembles these men and gives them a plan, and the only thing he gives them are torches, jars, and trumpets. You might be thinking, um, could use a sword... Or a rocket launcher or a tank. I mean, there's 300 of us. We're going to need more than an empty jar, a torch, and a trumpet. But that's what he's given. Look at verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. That's going to be important. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They don't have any swords. The sword is something someone else is holding. So it's working. 
As far as worrying whether or not they thought this was their own strength, well, they don't have a sword. So it's the sword of the Lord, sword for the Lord and for Gideon. 21, every man stood in his place around the camp, that's the 300, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahola, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh. And they pursued after Midian. There's another paragraph left in that chapter. We'll save that till next week. We've got enough here to begin to ask the question, what can we learn from this? But just to make sure we understood what happened that night, usually a torch and a trumpet are to signify a division or a company uh, or a, a, a battalion. And usually the trumpet and the torch would guide a group of men. So when they see lots of torches and lots of trumpets, they assume lots of companies, lots of battalions, lots of divisions. Um, here you've got the 300 trump, trumpet, trumpets, torches, and these... Uh, these jars spread across the valley walls, spaced out, I suppose, as much as they can to make it look like from the position of the camp, they're completely and totally surrounded. Uh, the sound that would have been produced when they broke the jars, which were hiding the torches, of course, um, and then when they broke, they're able to see the torch. That sound from the position of elevation and the acoustics down into the valley probably sounded what it would sound like when the army or battalion is called uh, into formation and all the swords are being removed from their sheaths. And the positioning of all this, including the trumpets, and if you've ever heard a recording or been over in the Holy Land when somebody blows a ram's horn with these very quick staccato blasts, it's, it's, it's quite unique. This is probably the, the, the first time... Uh, surround sound was coined because the way that the acoustics would go this would be an enveloping sound of broken jars and trumpets blasting and it scared them in the middle of nowhere they're set on edge but notice when that happened at the beginning of the middle watch when they just set the watch in the middle watch there's three watches so the first watch had been out watching. But then this takes place at the transition where the second watch is just woken up. And they're getting ready to replace, replace the first watch, which is very tired. And then the third watch is about as dead to the world as you can be, having slept. And you won't be required for another several hours. So what you've got is one watch returning into the army in the dark while the other watch is going out while you, at that point, realize you're surrounded, they attacked each other, which is exactly what it says. The Lord said, every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So it's, it's quite possible the second watch actually attacked the first watch as they were coming in during all the confusion. And just like the Battle of Jericho, nobody had to do anything. They stood while the army ran Although the human tactics were brilliant, the victory was given by God himself.
And that's where we draw this to a close for this morning. Here's, here's a couple of points, and one of them is basically just the opposite of the first. But this is what we'll use for this morning, especially a service involving communion. Point number one. God often weakens us before He uses us. That doesn't really teach as well in Sunday school with a flannel graph, does it? We usually like to teach our children that God will make you strong. And that's true. But His method for making you strong involves first making you weak. Because it's not your strength he's going to be building. He's going to be building his strength in you. It's different. It's a different process. God often weakens us before he uses us. There's no way around this passage to, but to understand that God intentionally weakened Gideon's army. Actually decimated it to less than 1% of what he had. And then he used that to destroy the Midianites. That's what we're learning from this passage and we want to say how in the world could that be a good thing during the process because usually the way it's all going to work out God withholds from us until that moment so most of the time we're thinking I don't know how this is a good thing this is a terrible thing we're kind of like Gideon in the last chapter where he's telling this man he doesn't know who happens to be the angel of the Lord God has abandoned us God hasn't abandoned us He's, he's, he's reducing our army so that he can make us strong. Weakness forces our dependence on God. That's why weakness is a good thing. If that's the objective, if dependence on God is the objective, then weakness is actually an asset, not a liability. Here's something else you might want to write down. And we'll work with this a lot more next week. But your strengths are far more dangerous than your weaknesses, spiritually speaking. You can get yourself into a lot of trouble when you think you're strong. Usually, it's not that much of a risk when you're weak. When you're weak, you're usually looking for help. And in this case, had God not weakened Gideon's army, they would have given themselves credit and been even further down the road of apostasy even quicker. That's the book of Judges. These people don't think they need God for anything. Now to be saved, if we were to look at this through the eyes of the New Testament and grace and salvation, to be saved implies not just weakness but helplessness, doesn't it? How do you receive grace? You work real hard for it and if you do a good enough job, God will give it to you like a gold star? No. It's by the blood of Jesus. Or it's not at all. You're helpless. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Salvation begins with the statement, I'm not righteous enough to save myself. So the person who sees themselves as having anything, as far as strength spiritually, that's an impediment to them coming to Jesus. Because coming to Jesus requires total bankruptcy. And he's going to do all of the work and you do none of it. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing, the gift of God, not of works, so you can't boast. Boy, that sounds a lot like uh, verse 2, doesn't it? Judges. I'll have to whittle down their army so they won't boast over me. Can you think of a way in which God has reduced your army? 
where you found yourself in a state of weakness you didn't ask for. Maybe you're in the middle of it. Maybe you've been blessed enough to have been through it and you're on the other side of it and you see how that it might have been the, the, the very thing needed to develop that dependence on God like you'd never had in your whole life. Um, what, what do you say your army would be? Your strength, bank account, uh, your garage, family. The story of Job talks about that. You, you, you remember God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He seems to deposit or withdraw based on our need for dependence on Him, which is inversely connected to our strength we see in ourselves. So point number two, and this is basically the opposite of point number one. Point number two, never forget your weakness before God. This will be huge next week because we're going to see in vivid tones in chapter 8 what happened to Gideon. It doesn't end well for Gideon. Gideon gets too big for his britches. He, can, he, he sees himself as strong. And it's a sad story. And we'll see what happens uh, by way of looking at opposites next week. But one of the worst things that can ever happen to a Christian is to forget their weakness before God. Why? Well, because you won't need a Savior if you can save yourself. Oftentimes our strength is measured in terms of independence and prosperity. Being able to stand on our own two legs, right? That's strength. Well, that's our, that's our biggest enemy. That's the story of judges. We are our own worst enemy. Usually Christians do reasonably well with the test of adversity, would you say? When Christians have a problem, what do they tend to do? Well, they might run around for a little bit with their hands in the air, but if they've got a good church, they'll be encouraged to dig into the Word, pray more and more often, ask others to speak into the situation through encouragement and wisdom, right? And then we have these things that we praise the Lord for after He's taken us through a valley. He seems to excel in that area. But the one thing that Christians have a bad reputation for is that test of prosperity. Sometimes they can blow that one and blow it really big. Because they don't need that church anymore. Or their family. Or their Bible. Or any of these other things. You may have, in your experience as a Christian, had the blessing to, to know some folks who God has blessed uh, materially. Um, a dumb way to say that is they've done well for themselves. Um, but if you've, if you've seen this the right way, it seems that God just seems to be using uh, them as some form of a conduit. The more He gives them, the more they tend to give away. And God seems to work and people are blessed through something that looks like a man who's truly passed the test of prosperity, right? But then you probably in your experience know some other folks who really wouldn't have anywhere near the same amount comparatively, but you would think they had it all. The way they just seem to carry themselves and it's an impediment to relationships 
And it's an impediment to their being able to be used of God because they think they're somebody when they're really like any of the rest of us. They're nobody spiritually. We need Jesus because we're all lost. So this business of, of the, the test of prosperity or adversity, we're going to learn next week how to pass the second one. Pass the test of prosperity. The point of this is that all through Judges, God is, is mapping out, and when he gets to Samson, it'll really become clear. God's not going to save the world through strength and power and conquering with armies or prosperity or a name that everybody knows. He's going to change the world through a carpenter who didn't have a place to lay his head, who was going to take all the world's sins, yours and mine, on himself. Every miracle he would, he would do involving health He didn't disappear those sicknesses and illnesses. He just stacked them up on himself to carry to the cross. How he was going to fix us was not going to be through strength and might, but through weakness. So when we get ready here in a minute to remember all that, we're going to try to focus on a little piece of bread that doesn't look like much to this world. What it represents is the sinless, broken body of a Galilean carpenter who died in your place. And then that little cup of grape juice is symbolic of his precious, sinless blood that his father required of him in order to pay our sin debt. Don't forget that verse that says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We think that the Romans or the Jews executed Jesus. It was his father who crushed him in our place. So communion is a reminder of Your strength. You're so strong spiritually that you're going to need the blood of a weak carpenter to have any hope of any standing before God. It's a reminder of weakness. And in that weakness, we're going to find God defined strength. So we'll pick this up where we left off. We'll pick it up next week where we leave off today. But we're going to prepare for communion right now. And I'm going to ask our deacons who are going to be helping serve if they'll come up front and and get in position here on the platform. The rest of you can use this time for, for prayer. It tells us that there's a time where we need to get our hearts right. We don't do this unworthily. And if you're visiting with us today, we don't practice closed communion, meaning you've got to be a member to have communion with us. The only requirement is that you be born again, that you know what communion means because you know Jesus Christ and his giving his life on your behalf. Um, As far as children go, usually mention this. If they're not old enough to understand these themes and understand what this means, then it's easy just to let the plate pass by. There'll be time where we can explain to them what it means and it can be meaningful to them. A meaningless communion doesn't make much sense. And we're not told that we're in trouble for not observing a meaningless communion. We're told we could get into trouble for doing it unworthily by making it less than it should mean. So we're going to prepare for this now. You can bow your heads and close your eyes and begin to to think through a, a spirit of prayer, asking forgiveness for the things that... We're, we're sinners. We live in sin. 
So it's necessary that we confess our sins. That's one of the ways we can observe communion unworthily is to do that with sin in our hearts. So we prepare now to ask the Lord even to show us the things we don't know about, but to get our hearts right, to remember Him as He asked us to do. Father, we've heard about strengths and weaknesses. And of the two, strengths sort of pops quickly to our minds, but yet help us to realize, Lord, that strength comes to us from you through our weaknesses. Thank you, Father, for the bread. Jesus was the bread of life. And by trusting in him, we have life everlasting, and we're grateful. Help us in these moments as we meditate on your broken body to be grateful for that sacrifice. Thank you for the bread of life. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 11. This is verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, as we come today to remember the shedding of blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and how much you showed your love for us, and he showed his love for you in doing what you told him to do and his love for us. May we look back in the past and see how he suffered and his blood was shed because in your holy word it says there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And he was the perfect lamb. And we thank you for that, Lord. May we look to today and see and remember Jesus' two commandments, that we should love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And that we should commit ourselves today to obeying those verses and being a bright light in this world. And we should look to the future and like those who have gone before us in knowing that our faith will become sight and someday we will see Jesus Christ face to face. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us and for your mercy and grace that sustains us each and every day. Jesus' name I ask this, and all God's people said, Amen. Again, reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Continues in verse 26, For as oft as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word proclaim there is not a lot different than the word preach. When we do this, we're preaching to each other, we're preaching to ourselves, preaching to the world. And we do this until when? Until he comes back. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to remember you. 
And Lord, to remember you the way you asked us to remember you. To think that there may be no one who remembers us when we're gone would be a painful thing. But Lord, that your children should forget you would be infinitely worse. Keep these things in front of our mind. And Lord, may we rehearse them together as a church family to remind ourselves of our weakness, which is our strength. We're part of the family of God. We thank you for this day, for time together, for your word to teach us, and for the encouragement of others. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.